really committed to making uh, sustainable and systematic change uh, for developing more inclusive practices. So we do that through our student engagement resources as well as our professional services side of the house. And the general theme is really one that is using policy and legislation weaken efforts that have really expanded over the course of the last 30 years to build more access to educational opportunities, more diverse representation in our educational systems, and not just representation of individuals, but then also of the content and curriculum that ultimately are getting taught in uh, classrooms and schoolrooms across the United States. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides inaugural podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad, a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships with World Strides, and I'm very much looking forward to this episode. Today, we're discussing a crucial and timely topic, the intersection of anti-DEI legislation at the state level and their implications for education abroad. According to the Chronicle of Higher Education, seven states have passed into law legislation that substantially restricts efforts by colleges and universities to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. Legislation recently passed in such states as Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and North Carolina includes some or all of the following provisions. Prohibiting colleges and universities from having DEI offices or staff banning mandatory diversity training, prohibiting institutions from using diversity statements in hiring and promotion, prohibiting colleges and universities from using race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin in admissions or employment. Yikes. I can't imagine a better person to speak to how these issues intersect with our work and study abroad than my friend, international education legend, Dr. Lily Lopez-McGee, Executive Director of Diversity Abroad. Lily is a longtime fixture and leader in our field, and I'm so pleased to welcome her onto the podcast. Stay tuned as Lily and I dive in. While I wish we were discussing a happier topic, I can't wait to pick her brain today. You do not want to miss this episode. Lily Lopez-McGee, thank you for being here. I'm so happy to be here, Zach, and what an intro that was. That makes me feel like I have some uh, standards to live up to now. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do. You know, I'd love for you to begin by by giving us some information on your background, uh, on your role, and an overview of your professional journey with Diversity Abroad. So I came to international education in kind of um, the way that a lot of folks in the field come or have come to it in that I had a substantive number of international experiences myself when I was an undergrad. I grew up in Washington State by way of Guatemala. Uh, My family returned to Guatemala quite frequently when I was growing up, so I am a proud Latina also Pacific Northwesterner, and with that background, went to the University of Washington as an undergrad with the intention of finding ways to have an international component to the experiences that I had in my college experience. And that led me to a number of uh, interesting experiences, including one that changed the entire direction of my life. I received a fellowship as an undergraduate sophomore and essentially received funding from the Department of Education to pursue international affairs as a career path. Uh, So I received funding for study abroad. I had funding for internships. 
and uh, graduate school. And after I completed my graduate school, a degree in public administration said, well, there's no other place that I have to, uh, to think about doing except for giving back to the organization that uh, put so much in, into me and trusted me with those uh, to be a steward of those resources. So I went to work uh, for that fellowship program. And um, at one point, uh, I, I had thought that I might do a career in international development. Um, the world had bigger ideas for me, and I ended up staying in international education as a, um, as a, a profession and stayed with that organization for about four and a half years until the fellowship lost its funding. And at that point, I had become very familiar with Diversity Abroad and Andrew and the work that he was doing, Andrew Gordon, our founder, and actually went to work for Diversity Abroad for a few years in the 2010s, where I worked on the professional services side of the house, uh, really working on assessment, um, professional development opportunities and the like. And after three years with Diversity Abroad, I had to take a step back in an attempt to try to finish my dissertation. And when I was not successful in finishing my dissertation in the time that I thought I had, decided to go back and get um, some of the work experience. So in between the time that I left DA, I then went to work for Howard University, also in the field of, of fellowships again. And uh, about two years ago, uh, when Andrew was looking to, as he does, uh, engage in some other entrepreneurial adventures, he created this position, the executive director role, uh, so that he could operationalize some of the things on the diversity broad side um, and do in his, in his wonderful work, um, explore some other, other ways of, of working on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. So that was my long sort of trajectory to getting here. All of it has very important pieces to, I think, the conversation that you and I will have, Zach, uh, because so much of this work is also very deeply personal to me. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Lily. I learned that you and I have more in common than I thought. You know, I'd love for you to share a bit about what brought you to dedicate so much of your professional journey to diversity, inclusion, and belonging. What are some issues that particularly speak to your heart, Lily, or keep you up at night? As I mentioned, I was a recipient of a pretty generous grant uh, when I was in undergrad. And uh, that was one of those pivotal moments where you can, I, I can easily look back and say that completely changed the direction of where it is that I, I thought that I was going at that point. And the, the fellowship itself was geared towards students from historically uh, marginalized populations, uh, including Latino populations. And funny enough, when I applied to the, to the fellowship, I thought to myself, well, you know, I may not be the most deserving candidate for this one. I can probably find my way through undergrad and figure things out to get into international affairs. But then when I got into the program, uh, there were so many things that I just had no concept about. I grew up in a very rural town in eastern Washington. My graduating high school class was 62 people. So this particular fellowship program had us staying for the first summer in Atlanta, where we stayed at Clark Atlanta University, which is a historically black college. Uh, and that was one of the first times that I had uh, engagement with such a diverse range of, of students that I said to myself, this has to be uh, a sign that this is, I, I meant to work with people who are very different from me, from different parts of the country, different parts of the world, in addition to my own personal lived experiences have really contributed to me dedicating a lot of my work to uh, building more inclusive practices, developing a sense of, of belonging for 
particularly young people who may not initially see themselves in these types of opportunities, as many folks who work in PE and I uh, might say, uh, this work is very personal in part because I have also been a benefactor of, of much of the interventions that have supported my uh, career progression. And the the same things that I have benefited from are also the same things that are, are deeply important to me. Uh, including making sure that I am not the last one to receive these types of uh, opportunities, that we continue to build more pipelines for progression for young people who may not even know that this is a path or opportunity for them. Uh, so making sure that that way is, uh, is clear and bringing folks up along with me is something that is a core to who I am and something that I, it also keeps me up at night because this work is not an easy, always easy to translate into, to those who may not see it as a, as an immediate benefit for whatever industry or sector that they might be in. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Lily. You know, in that same vein, could you share a bit about the mission of Diversity Abroad? So Diversity Abroad got its start in 2006, and it was very much uh, oriented towards getting more young people to see themselves in international opportunities. It started out as a website, that was focused on bringing tools and resources to young people, uh, particularly those from racial and ethnic minority groups, high financial needs students, students with disabilities, and first-gen students. And from there, our mission really evolved out in a number of different ways. We started out as being very student-centric, and then in about the 2010-2011 period, realized that Students are wonderful and they continue to need our, our time, attention and resources. And in order to make substantive change, we really have to change the systems that support the young people that are coming through our programs. That is when we started our network consortium of institutions and organizations. And now we have uh, more than 300 institutions, organizations and government entities that are part of our association. We're really committed to making uh, sustainable and systematic change uh, for developing more inclusive practices. So we do that through our student engagement resources, as well as our professional services side of the house. And I know that many folks on uh, who are listening to the podcast know us for our education abroad and work in education abroad. We also have a number of resources and services that are developed around um, three other areas of international education that include international student and scholar services, global learning at home, which sort of encompasses internationalization efforts um, on campuses, and career advancement and belonging that really looks at the field as a whole in terms of the professionals who make up the field. Uh, so that's a bit about the work that we do. We are a small and mighty team. Our mission is very large, um, and, which means that there's always opportunities for, for new and exciting endeavors for us to, to get into. The work never ends. Yeah, thank you for sharing never that, ends. Lily. <laughs> so our topic today is the climate surrounding DEI legislation here in the United States. Uh, so let's get into it. And Lily, I'd love it if you could set the, set the stage for us, please. Could you give us a 30,000-foot view of some of the developments we are seeing and how they have the ability to impact our work in education abroad? Yeah, there are a number of different initiatives that are happening right now, um, and they're happening at, at sort of two different levels in the United States. One is at the federal level, uh, which we've seen with the recent uh, Supreme Court ruling on the ban of use of affirmative action or race in the admissions process uh, for institutions of higher education, and at the state level, which Zach, you mentioned at the top of the, the podcast that really focuses on dismantling diversity, equity, inclusion efforts on campuses in very strategic and, and specific ways. 
And the general theme is really one that is using policy and legislation to weaken efforts that have um, really expanded over the course of the last 30 years to build more accessible or more access to educational opportunities, more diverse representation in our educational systems, and not just representation of individuals, but then also of the content and curriculum that ultimately are getting taught in uh, classrooms and schoolrooms across the United States. So while in higher education, we see this happening um, very systematically on the administrative side, sort of looking at tenure and promotion policies, uh, offices and staffing, this is also the, what's happening in the K-12 system with uh, looking at curriculum and book bans are also very immediately important for us to think about as well, because those, the systems that these young, that young folks are coming through right now will ultimately be laying the foundation for what it is that they're coming into higher education with. And the, the things that, the progress that we thought we were making in, in terms of getting more voices into the historical ledgers may be the sort of the center at all of this. Like, what is it that we're teaching? How is it that we're teaching it? And whose voices are really being centered in these conversations? Um, so when it comes to education abroad, uh, there are a couple of really core ways that this could uh, influence the work it is that we're doing. One is just in, in terms of access and who has access to education abroad. We will continue to see, uh, challenges to diversifying the population of students who can, who have uh, available options for education abroad. Um, the affirmative action, uh, ban really, uh, will likely influence what happens with study abroad numbers. Many of the institutions that currently are the top sending institutions for study abroad participation in the United States are also those with most selective admissions policies. Mm. And for those, many of the states that are represented in the top sending states are also those that are undergoing uh, legislation to, um, uh, again, dismantle the DEI initiative. So getting more diverse students into education abroad is likely to become harder. It will also likely be harder to focus on the curricular aspects of the, what many providers and institutions have been attempting to do with education abroad and bringing in more diverse voices and, and things. A lot of this will, will likely change the language it is that we're using and the approaches is that we're taking to making those substantive changes. So I think the immediate impact will happen in those two ways. And then later on down the line, and some of the things that we're already beginning to see in legislation and policy initiatives now is going to be much more expanded with regard to hiring policies, who it is that can teach what, more of those requirements and restrictions on those areas. So I think even beyond the educational component of it, we'll see this steep into other areas of uh, the administration of all of the work that we do, regardless of whether or not you're at an institution or whether you're at an organization or a federal agency or anything of that nature. Wow. Yeah. Well, it seems like there's going to be a lot of ripples. So so thank you for, for putting that so well. You know, I'd love to, to dig a bit deeper with you on this topic, Lily, if we could. You know, from your point of view, how have these changes influenced the conversations and priorities within education abroad? What are you hearing out there? Yeah, I think um, there's a, a, a lot of conversation about what we will be, what language we'll be using to discuss a lot of this work. Um, you know, one of the things that I find uh, interesting at this juncture is that the much of the policy and legislation is really centered around um, the use of diversity, equity and inclusion specifically. And that 
specific language. So what I think we'll likely start to see is that we'll start to see people using different forms of, of terms, different terms, different etymology to, to describe it is the work it is that we're trying to do. And this happened. We have precedent for this. In the 80s, there was a lot of language around multiculturalism and multicultural engagement and that kind of thing. And in the same vein or in a, in a very similar trajectory, there was pushback on this sense of multiculturalism. And what ended up happening is in the 90s, we saw much more language focused on diversity, equity, inclusion. So I think the language is definitely going to change and necessarily so that sometimes this, uh, I, I think the optimist in me sees this as an opportunity to really challenge what the status quo is and perhaps even disrupt what we were really, what diversity focused on in terms of quantity and quantitative numbers we might be able to even expand and explore really digging into belonging and inclusive practices and, and intercultural competencies in a way that really gets at an engagement with difference, right? And I think folks in the international education space really have an opportunity here to align much of the work it is that we do in this space of engaging with the other, engaging with difference, um, and finding ways to align those those objectives and goals with ultimately the objectives and goals of diversity, equity, inclusion work as they currently operate, right? And I think there have been some really interesting ways that organizations and institutions are tackling this by saying, if well, if we shift the language just a little bit, this may actually give us an opportunity to advocate for our colleagues who are working in DE&I offices so that they do have space when the office is dismantled to find another place on campus where their work and their, their skills and their competencies are valued in a, in a very important way and ultimately um, have an, uh, an opportunity to, again, kind of shift the way that we have operated in the last 10 to 15 years and really look at more collaborative and partnership-oriented uh, work uh, to really have uh, that impact that we're trying to get at. You know, I love what you said about, you know, the words may change, but the work stays the same, right? Because I've been hearing that a lot from from colleagues, especially in states like North Carolina, Texas, and others. And, you know, I, I, thinking about, about those colleagues, I'm wondering what advice, Lily, you'd have for education abroad leaders who may work in states under that legislative climate. One is to really determine or figure out what it is that's happening on your, your individual campuses. Um, this is going to look, the application of these laws will look very different at different institutions, in part, in large part, because the way that our organizations and institutions are structured is that some are more risk averse than others. And while the, the policy and legislation right now are really centered on a, a couple of states that have taken very direct action. There are lots of institutions in other states and other parts of the country that are taking what some have sort of deemed as proactive measures to not come under scrutiny or uh, the ire of policymakers who might be looking to uh, dismantle DE&I in their spaces. Um, so what we'll see is that beyond just the states where this is happening, we'll also start to see it at other institutions. So the first thing that I would encourage folks to do is really to get a sense of what's happening at your, your campus. What is your campus's risk tolerance? What is its approach to this right now? Because that will look very different. Another one is to really get in touch with the folks on campus 
who will be directly affected by the legislation and see what ways you might be able to help support the work it is that they're doing. Um, one of the, the, the things that um, we've heard from a couple of institutions is how is it that we can reorient our work in, in the global education office, perhaps even in the hiring process to shift some of our competencies to align with the language that has historically been used for our diversity, equity, inclusion colleagues so that there is very clearly an alignment between hiring opportunities and job positions that may become open in other spaces of either student affairs, global education, or other types of things. So finding ways to really do that, do that work and also see what it is that they need, right? There may be opportunities to partner with the offices and be the advocates um, in a way that they may not have the ability to do at this moment. The other big thing is that I I think we often forget that some of the most instrumental change that has happened at institutions of higher education doesn't often come necessarily from legislation, but it comes from students and student demand. And if we don't understand what our students or how our, how we can really find uh, ways to partner with our students, then I think we're missing an opportunity here. And the students, since they will ultimately be the ones that will be affected by how these policies and legislation is implemented, this is a really great opportunity to re-engage or engage students in a meaningful way, use their voice as leverage. I, just as an anecdote, when I was at an institution of higher education, you know, my email to the provost may not garner the immediate response, but get that student and that student leader's voice in, into that inbox and you will see immediate response um, because ultimately the students are the, the core of the work it is that we're doing. So um, I think those are three things that immediately come to mind um, because there, there's so much that happens at sort of the localized level of our own institutions, organizations um, that we forget that we can we can have immediate impact even when the legislation or the policies, as we kind of started this conversation, are very 30,000 foot view, right? What is it that I can do in my personal domain that can start to, to have uh, sort of smaller ripple effects at the localized level? I think that's really great and concrete advice that's, that's very actionable. So, so thank you for sharing that, Lily. As the leader of Diversity Abroad, you have, of course, written about the likelihood of ripple effects of the recently passed legislation throughout all of higher ed. As a little bit of time has now passed since the onset of some of these changes, at least, what are you observing and what should we keep in mind? Yeah, I think what we'll see is the broadening application of some of these very specific policies to other domains of the work that we're, uh, that happens at our institutions. And what I mean by that is that while the, the Supreme Court ruling was very specifically centered on admissions, what we are likely to see is that there will be more challenges using the language of that case in the application of hiring processes, of uh, remuneration and promotions of uh, what financial aid and student scholarships look like and those types of things. So those will be very, I, I think, specific areas that we'll have to monitor um, because what I suspect will happen is that this will, this has broadened out precedence um, using the, the legalese terminology, right? Our, our system of uh, judicial prudence that really focuses on precedent. And this has laid now the precedent for the, its application across other different uh, spaces of uh, administration. The other thing is to, I, I think, to really monitor what's happening at the K-12 level with regard to curriculum, content, textbook language, the use of certain terms and, and the like, because what I suspect will happen is that that application may find its way 
into our higher education curriculum as well. And this, in the higher education space, this often happens with the the uh, sort of conversations around uh, tenure, promotion, faculty voice, and free speech, and all of these types of things. So I suspect that we will likely see ripple effects in those areas as well. So where we might be very centered on uh, student admissions um, at the moment, uh, it will likely be that we will have to tackle our orientation towards DEI in very many other areas of, of campus. This is a complex topic, to say the least. What are some resources that education abroad professionals can consult in terms of staying up to date and thinking through the layers of these changes, both the affirmative action changes from the Supreme Court and the anti-DE&I legislation at the state level? What would you recommend? Yeah, I think there are a couple of, of different resources that are, are out there. One, I would say that the Diversity Abroad site that certainly has a number of different resources and analysis that we've done. Um, that focuses, sort of micro-focuses on some of the, the specific ways that this could impact international education. Um, and we are working continuously to make sure that those are updated. Later this week, we'll actually have some resources up uh, that uh, look through the recent administration's uh, guidance, uh, the Biden-Harris administration's guidance on the application of the affirmative action to uh, admissions policy. So we'll interpret some of that. So we'll continue to monitor things. Um, there are also lots of, of other organizations higher sort of looking at education, higher education more broadly, like ACE and uh, some other associations that are putting out material that is not necessarily specific to international ed, but clearly has alignment with the way that institutions of higher education are implementing and responding to these changes. The other thing is that I always encourage people to look at the material as it's coming out themselves. You will receive analyses from other other folks. It's also very helpful for you to know exactly what it is that's, that uh, is actually being stated in these things, because um, there may be pockets uh, or pieces of, of the language that one organization might grab to that looks very different than what it might actually be in, in the legislation itself. To the extent that you can, I would encourage that you sign up for the notifications that are coming out of the Department of Education and the Biden-Harris administration and whatever administration comes after to follow up with the, the guidance that the, the government itself is putting out. And at your institutional level, to the extent that you can reach out to your colleagues on campus who are, are, are really monitoring this very closely, most institutions and organizations have somebody that works on uh, monitoring legislation and policy advocacy. So following their updates, also coordinating with the diversity, equity, and inclusion offices until the point where they may be labeled something else, finding out ways to, to plug into those localized contexts as well. Because as I mentioned, a lot of this is going to look very different at different institutions. So the more that you can find out how it is it is being interpreted and applied to your unique institution's context, the more you'll be able to respond in sort of that more immediate, tangible way. You know, I love what, you, what you've said um, a few times now about, you know, knowing the culture of your specific institution, because as we know, you know, no institution is alike, especially when it comes to this type of thing. So I think that's really good advice. You know, and, and that same vein, I'm wondering if you have any any tips for our listeners about how to communicate the landscape of, of anti dni legislation um, to leadership at one's institution, you know, whether that's, you know, to one's supervisor could be an SIO or to the administration at large. Do you have any advice? Yeah, I think there is, there's this interesting push-pull that happens in international education. Um, there's this element that, I, you know, I've heard in some pockets where it's 
you know, international education is not DEI. So let's try to keep ourselves sort of out of the fray, out of that particular conversation. And I, my in- inclination is that international education is actually at the crux of this work. Um, that ultimately, what we're trying to justify in terms of international opportunities is that our students and we are engaging with difference. And how is it w- that we are able to engage um, in in conversations with people who think and look and act and are in different places than our own? And if that's not DEI, then I'm not sure really what it is, right? Uh, so I I would encourage people not to shy away from engaging in these conversations because I think there is an inclination to say that's not us. Let's just see to wait and see to what happens. And I, I think the opportunity here is is to really align what the goals of international education are with the goals of what diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work have historically looked at doing, and that's developing more um, inclusive environments where people can see themselves and engage with people who are different from their own, and ultimately learn more about the world that is in which we operate, whether that's at, at sort of the local or regional level, all the way scoped out to the international level. So I do think that there are ways for folks in the international education field uh, to use the language of intercultural competencies and engaging with difference in a meaningful way that justifies maintaining um, some of this work or realigning it in a, from the leadership and strategy point uh, to align with some of the, the orientations that have historically been sort of associated with international ed. So that is that is one thing that comes up when I'm thinking about this work in, in particular. That's great. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Lily. You know, along similar lines, I think that one of the strengths of our field is our ability to connect across borders and across campuses. What are some words of wisdom you can share with our listeners around cultivating spaces with a true sense of belonging? Yeah, this is a, a, an interesting uh, point of conversation, I think, in, in large part because I, I think there are a lot of opportunities for us to really lean into the belonging work and the inclusive practices area of the work it is that we're doing. And there's been some really interesting research out of sort of organizational management uh, spaces that have looked at people's responses to diversity, equity, inclusion work. And oftentimes what ends up happening is that when DEI work is approached with an, uh, an inauthentic or sort of surface level engagement, people's reactions are generally not going to be to support it. It'll be sort of the, the inverse of that. Like, oh, this doesn't seem like it's actually getting uh, at the things that you're trying to do. It, it's you're asking me to do things that I, I'm not, the language doesn't align with, with the things that I'm interested in or it just feels like it's a checkbox initiative, right? One opportunity is to really look at this with the authenticity and, and genuineness um, that if you come to the table saying, this is something that I'm really interested in and you're genuinely interested in it, the other folks in your in your network, whether that's at your institution or whether it's students, will feel that authenticity. And with that, I think it comes something that uh, we often challenge our students to do, and that's engaging in places of discomfort, right? Some of this is new and unfamiliar territory for folks in our field. So it, it will feel like you're, you're learning new language, you're 
sort of orienting yourself around topics that you hadn't necessarily engaged with. And that's okay, because as long as you're coming to it from a learning element of cultural humility, where you don't necessarily know everything, and you're there as an opportunity to learn and exchange, um, people will resonate with that. And that ultimately will contribute to a larger sense of belonging, whether it's at your institution or with the students that you're trying to work with. I, I would use this as an opportunity to get curious about the things that are either uncomfortable or that you're not really sure about and ask questions. Questions are a really great entry point for um, some of these, these conversations. Another resource offered by Diversity Abroad is the Global Equity and Inclusion Guidelines for Self-Assessment. I think so many of us today are in a place where we are really looking not only inwards, but around us at our organization in our practices for alignment with our values and goals. Could you please tell us more about this tool and how our colleagues can use it to shape their work? The Global Equity and Inclusion Guidelines came out of a conversation in my first round of working with Diversity Abroad, where we realized that there are some organizations and institutions that are really doing some interesting things around uh, inclusion and belonging work. And we wanted to formalize that into something that was both reflected the, the space that we're in, in terms of what practices uh, and strategies can be really helpful in developing more inclusive practices in education abroad and also aspirational and that we wanted to push the field to think uh, about more that we could do in the space of diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, so the, the tool, me and a, a colleague of mine, then graduate student, uh, pulled together a sort of very long list of indicators of things that people were doing currently, things that we thought we could sort of would be stretch goals for the field and developed this, uh, what we started off as the access, inclusion, diversity, and equity roadmap, and now is the global equity and inclusion guidelines. So those public-facing guidelines are really suggestions on how to approach different operations within education abroad, and then getting down into the, the nitty-gritty of, okay, what does this look like in practice? What do our hiring structures look like? How are our advising practices oriented in an inclusive way? Um, what is the What do our policies look like in advance determining our partnerships with different organizations to determine if they have uh, DE&I policies or r- responses already in place for harassment and discrimination that might happen abroad, or what does the curriculum look like? And that was our, our effort to sort of say, here are some of the core ways that we think the field can start to look at equity and inclusion. So um, that tool, the public facing guidelines are there as a resource for folks to start to ask those questions. Again, really get curious about the things that currently exist, maybe some of the policies and processes mm-hmm. that don't currently or may not be operational at your institutional organization yet and uh, could really start to push the uh, the conversation internal to each organization and office to say, where can we start? Where are our critical areas of need? And then how do we construct a strategy out of those critical areas of need and celebrate the things that we really are doing well? In that same vein, Lily, I know Diversity Abroad is, of course, a far-reaching organization that touches many institutions of higher learning and many professionals throughout international education. Would you like to call out any truly excellent or insightful initiatives you're seeing right now? Yeah, I think there are some really good examples um, because I can't name everyone. I won't name specific institutions or organizations. What I'll shout out is the strategies that they're using to really, I, I think, embody what it means to be to, to look and assess not just the operations and process or just the access piece, but then also everything around that. And 
I would say that there are some organizations that are doing some really good work around curriculum where they're looking very closely at the current curriculum offerings that they're, that they have in place for the programs that they're offering, looking through the syllabus, looking through the training and resources that they're offering their faculty and saying, are we providing our faculty with the tools and resources that they need to be able to work with diverse students when they're in their classrooms? Are we giving them the resources or are we providing opportunities for guidance around the types of perhaps case studies or uh, discipline specific content that might bring in diverse voices or really leveraging the fact that you are operating in a very, you know, unique spaces in the world where you can really leverage the global uh, component of the classroom as well. I would say that there are also one of the areas of uh, particularly education abroad where I think the most substantive work has happened is at the point of access, sort of how do we get more students in into uh, the space? And there are some really good models out there for reevaluating the application process, looking at the questions it is that you're asking, how is it that you're assessing or the, the rubrics that you use to assess whether or not students are prepared and capable of going into the international space. And there have been some really good efforts to sort of step away from just looking at perhaps the GPA and really looking at education abroad as a higher impact practice, as a potential intervention for students who may be on the cusp. And this may be the turning point in their experience to where they will come back because the, the research does suggest that particularly for underrepresented students, Study abroad can be a turning point where they come back and their retention num- numbers are higher, their academic performance is higher. Um, so really shifting that narrative in the application to say, let's get the, the top achieving students to how do we use this as an intervention play for students who could really use this to come back and excel after they've returned from their study abroad experience. So I think there are some really good examples of folks doing that out there. And we have some good examples on our website if you want to see specific names of institutions and organizations that are that are doing that work. Fantastic. And, you know, as we begin to uh, wrap up here, Lily, I'd like to look ahead. What trends do you foresee as education abroad and the DEI roadmap evolves? If I had a crystal ball, I would certainly be looking (laughs) into it right now, hoping that I could see some trajectory of where it is that we're going. I am very much, uh, if you had asked me, I, I think several years ago, if I was an optimist, I'm not sure that I would have oriented myself in that way. Although the more that I talk about this, the, some of the, the policy and legislation that's happening, I find myself being a little bit more optimistic than others about what this could mean. I think a lot of it has to do with what it is that we decide we want from our future. I, I think the pandemic served as a very jarring and disruptive, unplanned intervention in international education. And it, it, it gave us the space to really think about where it was that we're going. I don't know that we used some of the lessons as well as we would have liked or our past selves would have seen us using uh, at the moment. And I, I think one of the things that I would like to see come out of this is us doing some reflective, spending some time thinking about where it is that we want to be and how it is that we want to be oriented and using this as another space to say, this is another disruption to the status quo. How can we use this rather than as a, a as just lamentation and and uh, lamenting what's happening to okay well how can we really pivot the way that we're we're orienting ourselves because the status quo is not working for most students 98% of students who are enrolled in higher education will not participate in internet or have not historically participated in an international opportunity um so it wasn't working the way that it was before 
So how can we really think creatively and innovatively about the way that we approach global education and global um, opportunities that open it up for students who may not otherwise be thinking about it as a possibility? And also at the same time, think very critically about how we can orient or include global learning throughout the educational experience, um, recognizing that travel is not going to be sort of the largest sustainable opportunity for us to engage in, um, right? Climate change is, is very much uh, at our, our doorstep right now. We're responding to those impacts as it is. So how do we get students thinking about the global connections, even without having the travel component there? And I think there are lots of really interesting and compelling strategies that folks are using in the virtual and uh, e-space that we can use as leverage points to get students interested. And then ultimately, for those who are able to travel and have the space and capacity to do so, get them on programs that will really help them develop their acumen around how they orient themselves in the world. And for my my final question to you, Dr. Lopez McGee, is this. As you think about education abroad in 2023, what makes you hopeful? I will say that there are two things that make me really hopeful, and it really does ultimately come uh, back to people. The people in the field, I, I think in international education, working in DEI, it can get a, sometimes a, a little bit of a slog because you're like, oh, you know, we're here, we're talking about this a point of conversation that perhaps uh, some of us have had for 10, 15 years, right? And also, well, that some of the, the conversations are, are foundational conversations that are still happening. There's so much more that's happened within the last uh, 10 to 15 years that I think is really exciting. Sometimes we forget that change is incremental. And as you're going through the incremental change, you're not seeing it, right? Because it's happening pretty slowly. And when you do a retrospect, I do think that we have made some substantial change. And it's because people are committed. To, there are a lot of people in our field who are really committed to doing the, the hard work of, of developing the partnerships and working with the students and creating the resources to make this accessible to, to everyone. I also think that the students are something of an inspiration for me in large part because the conversations that they're having about equity and inclusion are very different, I think, even from when I was an undergrad and they're a little bit more fluid in their language. They have adapted in some ways that I, I think we don't give them often the credit that they deserve for for it. And seeing some of the young leaders that are coming out and really stepping into spaces, uh, working in our field and in fields that are parallel to international education is really helpful for me um, because they're coming in being curious. They ask the questions. They really say, why do we have this policy here? You know, this seems uh, like one of those opportunities to say, have we just been doing it because we've done it this way all the time? Um, or is, does it actually have some uh, some substance behind it? So um, the, I know that my team in particular, there are lots of opportunities that we've had where they've sort of asked the questions and that because I've opened up the space to have the questions, why do we do it this way? And we've reoriented some things to be more efficient in, in that work because they've asked the question. So I, I think the people are what gives me hope, uh, particularly as we look at tackling some of the really big, challenging global issues that are on the table for us. Well, I can't imagine a better place to end it than right here. Dr. Lily Lopez-McGee, thank you so much for being here. This has been such a great conversation. It was a pleasure to be here. And thank you again for the invitation. Absolutely. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. 
I'm your host, Zach McInnes, and please make sure to join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Thank you to my spectacular World Strides colleagues, Lindsay Kelcher and Sarah Kachuba, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Please subscribe to Changing Lives Through Education Abroad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.